I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everyone, Jeremy Scheinwald here with yet another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Our podcast is produced by Venture for America, a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to see more fellow success stories, or to support our work, or even to apply for the fellowship, visit, visit VentureForAmerica.org. I am your dutiful host, Jeremy Scheinwald. I launched the Mission Driven Group. You can check out our brands at MissionDrivenGroup.com. And please remember to like our show, Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, on iTunes. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy Scheinwald. And I'm sure you can find me on LinkedIn and the like. I'm happy to be your online friend. I'm up your in-person friend. Why not? You sound like a nice person. Our guest today is Dave Finocchio, co-founder of Bleacher Report. As an econ and history graduate from Notre Dame, Dave came to the realization that he wanted to do something atypical. He launched Bleacher Report on the side while working in private equity. Bleacher Report exploded, and Dave left his job to grow Bleacher Report's audience, and grow it did. Long story short, a decade later, after a sale, after a sale to, Turner, to Turner Sports for reported $215 million, Bleacher Report now boasts over 100 million monthly visits. That's roughly 100 million more visits than this podcast has listeners, um, but I jest, we have amazing listeners, and we're growing too. Um, anyway, after the sale of Bleacher Report, Dave left for a year of travel with his wife, and um, then Turner re-recruited him. <laughs> they, they brought him back for return engagement. He became Bleacher Report's CEO in January of this year. I am truly thrilled to have Dave Finocchio on the show today. But before we start with Dave... I am going to ask you because Dave built a website, and um, you know when you are building your own uh, online business, clearly, well, the nature of building an online business is that you need a website, and it needs to be easy and cheap within your budget. And why not do it for free? And that's where Wix.com comes in. Um, you don't have to worry about your budget, scheduling appointments, building your web web presence. Wix.com allows anyone to build a stunning website and fast. There are hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from. You have the drag-and-drop editor, so there's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Go to Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free account today. No credit card required. Go to Wix.com today. And here is what I think is really, I did it, I must admit, uh, I'm I'm recording the intro afterwards, really... um, uh, a tremendous and uh, really a lot of fun, uh, a great interview. If, if I'm going to put the credit with Dave uh, today on the podcast. So I really hope you listen and enjoy. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Dave, thanks so much uh, for being here. Thank you for having me. Great so, to be here. Yeah, uh, when I read your, I was reading about you, and I mean, what a great honor that you were invited back by your alma mater, Notre Dame, to to speak um, about your experiences growing the company, and 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 uh, and you talked about it kind of as an economics and history student, how you kind of had a long view of history, and um, and how it made you kind of want to be significant and impactful. If I'm putting words in your mouth, forgive me, but but I, I, you know, and and that sort of leading you to. Uh, want to be off the off the well trodden path, and I'm you know trying to do something for yourself. But I'm I'm curious if these if these thoughts were like, 
you know, empowering or frightening to realize, like, wow, maybe I should just, I have to do something on my own? I think a little bit of both. Uh, when, I w- when I was in college, I was very much on a finance track. I was an economics major in addition to being a history major, which naturally you, at least many people kind of on the same road as me, would try to get a finance internship at a venture capital firm or a private equity firm or, or do something of that ilk. And uh, as I I kind of got under the hood and saw what that was like and talked to a lot of people that I encountered who were actually living that life and seen seen what it was what it was like and maybe there was less glamour involved and maybe they had trouble with relationships that they were in because they worked so much or whatever it was um, I uh, I gained more and more of an appreciation or maybe a realization that I wanted to do something that was different where I could kind of walk my own path and yeah, you're right. I think the fact that I was a history major and maybe more cognizant of uh, what was possible and what amazing people had done through the history of time, um, I realized that you probably don't accomplish great things unless you have the guts to kind of step out on your own a little bit more. So yeah, played a role. <laughs> so I mean, you you started um, you started your career in in private equity, and were you kind of launched um, Bleacher Report. Part time, and I, I, I sort of I feel like the, the the beginning of Bleacher Report sort of reads like the beginning of a joke, like four high school buddies walk into a bar type thing. But it was you four four high school friends who started the sports site. When you started it, was it like this is the beginning of like an epic David and Goliath battle, or was it like let's just have fun and start a sports site? Like you know, was it like we're going to take on ESPN, or was it yeah, you know, let's just have some fun and see what happens with this idea? When so when I decided I was going to do this, I I had a I. I was just a big consumer of online sports content, and I had a couple of observations about the space. And I thought the space, I thought content was a little boring. I thought most of the content, uh, very wordy at the time, very text heavy, not visual enough, not what we would call today social or snackable. And it was just tailored mostly at an older audience, not speaking about sports the way my generation was speaking about sports for the most part. And also the there were just huge supply and demand inefficiencies around certain teams, uh, certain sports events where there just wasn't enough coverage relative to what um, what sports fans of those those teams wanted. So decided that I would actually do something about it. I made a like I made a PowerPoint, I had no idea what I was doing. I made a PowerPoint presentation. I sent it to some friends, maybe eight friends that I thought had a you know good combination of uh, brains and also might um, might be in a good place of their lives to work on a project. And I said, who wants to do this with me? and ended up having one friend sign on and then another friend and then another friend and lo and behold they were all friends from uh from high school who we later became our founding team but in the beginning it was i mean it was a hope and a dream it was a project i'm not sure that we really believed that it would be a company from we might have said that we did but in our heart of hearts we really believed that we were going to go take on espn at that point no ab- absolutely not uh but it was a dream and it was something in our lives that we we're able to hold on to that made us maybe feel a little bit different and special and uh, and like we were doing something that was uh, that was different. It was probably more important to us than anyone else. <laughs> there are like five questions I want to leap off there from so I'm trying to remember them all. But the first one is in what you were saying about the the mature coverage and sort of being inefficient and disproportionate. I mean, can you can you put that into words? Like, was there just I don't know, way too much? Uh, I don't know soccer coverage, whatever whatever it might yeah, be. I'll give you a couple of manifestations of that. One, if you were a fan of, say, the Red Sox or the Yankees, ESPN and other national sites probably had you pretty covered. So I bet Yankees and Red Sox fans ha- didn't feel the same pain that maybe Golden State Warriors fans used to before um, right. they got as good as they, as they are now. But if you were a fan of teams that weren't even like way down the long tail, I'm not talking about like the Columbia baseball team here. I'm talking about the Winnipeg the San Jets. Francisco Giants. The Win- yeah, the, Win- <laughs> the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, in terms of what was going on online in 2005, six, seven, eight, there just was not much coverage. It might like it'd be your lucky day if there was a there was an original article online that would actually had commentary and analysis about your team. There might be a game recap, but something that went deeper and actually related to you, the fan, and what you were you were seeing. It just it just didn't exist. Um, the national media model and nobody nobody had really figured out economically kind of how to cover that many teams around events figured out really quickly that the NFL draft was badly undercovered. There was interest in the NFL draft year-round. Most media outlets didn't start covering it until a month or two before the actual draft, especially when the NFL regular season ended. Immediately, 
people were searching for NFL draft order and you want like it's it's hope hope's really powerful in sports hmm. you want to know who your team potentially can get they can turn around next season on the flip side there were there were events like the Major League Baseball All-Star Game is the best example of an event that was so saturated in terms of coverage relative to kind of modern day interest in the event. There used to be huge interest in the event 30 years ago. There, there isn't anymore. So is this something you, you figured out like prior to launching and you just had no analytics? It was like, look, I'm, I'm just watching the telecast and it just seems obvious. Or was this something like as you started the site, you're like, the data is clearly showing like way more dispersed interest. When we got going, it was gut. So there were some high level observations that we were then able to prove out through data. But then as we were able to prove out things through data, it was like, oh my God, there's a there's a whole world of data out here, a lot of which was publicly available through products like Google Insights, where you could search for any single term in the world on Google Insights. You could search for a term like NFL draft order, and you could see that on the last day of the NFL regular season, there was a massive spike in interest in that term, but outlets weren't really covering the term. So we just found basically more and more inefficiencies for each sport, for each team. And then as we started creating content about those sports, about those teams, we got a lot of our own proprietary data and just got to the point where, and because sports, unlike other news categories, is so cyclical, the same events happen at the same time every year or Mm. some every four years, you can learn from them as kind of, you know, you go through it over and over again. That's really interesting. <clears throat> the so let's see, I want to go back to this 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 team of co-founders. Um, were you guys all just from the beginning writers? Or did you actually even did you have business responsibilities as well? Is it like you're the marketing guy, you're the operations guy? It was like let's just write a bunch of content together. In the in the beginning, we definitely tr- we definitely tried to kind of slice and dice things. But in the beginning, you don't. Whenever you start a company, you might have a vision for where where you want it to end up. Um, but how you get to that vision is usually pretty blurry. And so sure, we had a little bit of a division of responsibilities. Um, I ended up kind of being, at the, at the time, like I was in charge of all the, the finance and the business side of the business, and then I was also in charge of content, and one of, the, one of the other guys was in charge of actually making sure the content was edited, and then another guy was in charge of business development, and another guy was in charge of kind of like managing the one engineer we had. Uh, but truth be told, at that time, I mean, we all had our hands in everything, and uh, we just, you know, it, t- it took years and years of hard conversations and real life experiences to figure out, you know, a, like an actual efficient structure for how to grow. And and what always happens with founders too and early people, we all, none of us knew very much in the beginning, and we all ended up learning different things, and we grew at different paces. So my skill set evolved, their skill sets evolved. We ended up being good at some stuff. We ended up being not good at other stuff. So there's some chaos in the early days while you're all kind of figuring that out. So you might think you're good at something that you're not actually good at. <laughs> so so that, that's an, an inevitable follow-up question there, which is, what were, what were some of those things, that, that, what were some of those missteps you guys made early on and had to figure out? Yeah, I think our, our big misstep, aside from just, we were very young. We were you know, 22, 23 when we started the company. We were 23 when we quit our jobs and started working on it full time. So, did everyone just leave on mass? Was it like, hey, look, this thing's grown a certain point? And all four of you were like, boom, let's we're out, we're out of our jobs. Or we, I was living in Chicago at the time. I went back to the Bay Area for kind of a a team meeting in Labor Day of 2006, and we all made a commitment to uh, to each other at that point that we were going to quit our jobs <laughs> by March of the next year. Um, Three of the four of us quit our jobs. One of the other guys didn't actually follow through and kind of milked his <laughs> job for another few months, which uh, um, I'll you know give him uh, shit for for the rest of his life. But uh, but three of us actually jumped in, and I think the I cut you off before I, I, I you can go along that that path. I apologize. No, but no, I, I, had, I had asked you about missteps and then just got excited and interjected. Oh man, missteps. I think the big misstep we made was that we were, uh, we had, we had a lot of debate about um, about our strategy as a business, like high level strategy. And I think we it took us years to figure out whether we wanted to be more of a, a technology platform or if we wanted to be a media company. So you could you could have envisioned early Bleach Report as more of like a Tumblr for sports, right? A place where anybody could come and create content. The best stuff would rise to the top, and they would get followings. And the bad stuff nobody would kind of ever see. And in the midst of building that, um, Google News came along and all of a sudden even our lousy content was getting kind of distributed out to the world in a way that we never imagined when we were creating the site. And it made us think more about becoming 
kind of a media company earlier on. The hard thing about wrapping our heads around creating a media company earlier, so media company is really expensive. It costs a lot of money to pay writers to create content or video or whatever else you're doing um, versus platforms. It's kind of like, okay, we'll build a technology platform, we'll build a CMS, and then other people can use it. The Just kind of the way the business ended up shifting, we, uh, we kind of moved more and more towards content and uh, and it took us a few years to kind of transition from some of those kind of more platform aspects of the business to being just more of a full-fledged media company with editorial controls and um, everything that we've now had for, for years. I want to tell you about Kevin Gowan Sr., who, realizing that accounts receivable financing was a growing industry, saw that it was just missing a few com- key components. Kevin founded Amerifactors Financial Group, LLC, in 1990, with a focus on professionalism, expert customer service, and a drive to take the success of your business personally. They've been in business for 20 years and have funded over $5 billion, $3 billion uh, to businesses. With America, with, with AmeriFactors, you can stop waiting 30, 60, or 90 days to get paid on invoices. You can turn your invoices into immediate working capital through factoring. Factoring isn't a loan, and there's nothing to pay back. You can use the funds to make payroll, hire new staff, buy equipment, or go after new customers. Amerifactors may be a financial service provider, but they're so much more than that. They're your business partner. Go to www.amerifactors.com or call 1-800-844-FUND. That's 1-800-844-FUND. The $600 application fee will be waived if you mention the Smart People Should Build Things podcast when you call. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I'm sorry if I'm jumping around here, but I actually do want to go back to one other question about you leaving your job. I'm just curious if those PE guys were like, did you when you told them, were they like, wait, you've been on the side running like a burgeoning web property, or were they aware of it at the time? Or? I mean, it wasn't a very big. It wasn't very big at the time, I and mean, it was. I think we got we got to the point where we maybe had 50 or 100,000 people coming to the site a month, which in the you know grand scheme of things is absolutely nothing. Right. Um, it was less, our decision to quit was more about wanting to go and try our hand at something entrepreneurial and just really, it was a it was a life decision versus a, oh my gosh, we started this and it's taking off and now we have to quit our jobs. So, yeah, I, I, I remember those conversations with, you know, in Chicago, people aren't as used to, oh, you're going to quit your job and move to San Francisco to start a company. I think you probably got a lot of rolled eyes and like, right. okay, good, good luck, you know. <laughs> Let us know how it goes. Stay in touch. So uh, he'll be you know. back. He'll be back. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, you raised a you raised a million and a half dollars Series A in in two thousand seven. You ultimately ultimately went on to raise about forty million dollars. Yeah. Um, and so many uh, companies today are like, you know, yeah, we'll grow, we'll get users, and then we'll figure it out. Um, yeah. I mean, was that was I mean, you talked about how your user base was kind of small at that point. I mean, was was it? Um, were you able to see a path to profitability from the beginning, or was it just kind of like, I don't know, we'll, we'll figure this thing out? So, I mean, when we first started, we really had no idea. If I'm being totally honest, we had no idea how the media business really worked at all. We had a product vision, and we wanted, we really thought there was an opportunity to make sports fans happier. And then that, that was really the premise. But once, once, we, uh, once we started to learn how the underlying kind of economics and mechanics of this types of business worked, um, you realize really quickly that uh, that content businesses and digital media businesses are are usually zero sum kind of ga- games. It's either you either build your audience to a point where advertisers see value in you because you ha- you reach enough people, or you don't. So in the sports world at the time, we kind of figured that we needed to get to about 10 million people a month, or our business was worthless. So it, that very much shaped how we built the business, and we went and talked to a bunch of VCs in, in Silicon Valley, and you went up and down Sand Hill Road, and just over and over, we got, well, you guys are constructing an interesting model, we totally get the product need, it's a tough pr- challenge, but man, you've got, you've got ESPN, you've got CBS, you've got Fox, you've got Sports Illustrated, you have AOL at the time, there are others, you're like, you're going into the most crowded space ever. It's not, it's not like you're doing something that's you know, that's totally new Ooh. where you're going and building a new category here. And a lot of people told us, this is interesting, but we fundamentally do not believe that you can build a big enough audience to sell advertising. 
And so and I was very motivated, motivated by that to then go figure out a model for generating audience where we could get to scale and we could build a sustainable business. Figured if we, if we didn't get to that part, and that's where many, many other companies um, in, this, uh, in this space failed, where they might have been creating valuable content to, to someone, but because they didn't get to audience scale, they were never able to make any money. So yeah, I would say the, the venture capital community definitely influenced us as well. So I mean, it's interesting, you're saying like they, they themselves were skeptical of your ability to compete with an ESPN or a, a, you know, an AOL or whoever it was. But I mean, you have this insight and you've got the data that says like, hey, this whole, all this information is, is, is inefficient. When you finally catch on to that, like, were you just looking around saying like, okay, we, we like, this is almost like a scary insight. Like, you know, we, 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 we see this big hole, you know, what happens if ESPN or, or SI figure this out? Yeah, we definitely thought that way for, uh, for a while. I think for a couple of years we were, uh, we were making moves. I mean, we, we woke up and went to battle every single day. I mean, it was just heads down. Um, we probably all went a little bit crazy at the time. And sure, we lived in constant paranoia that these guys were going to figure out what we were doing and start to kind of emulate the strategy. And to some extent, others did. Um, maybe I, I won't name names, but in the more in the startup space, there was another two two other sports players who who looked very closely at what we did and they started competing in the same spaces that we were competing in. Um, in, in other verticals, there were companies that looked at what we did and started emulating kind of the, the exact same strategies. So we, because of that, we were very cognizant of, it's like, hey, maybe ESPN will, will run some sort of playbook here and make our lives a lot more difficult. And so some of that created a huge sense of urgency to go as fast as we possibly could. And and why couldn't they? I mean, you know, as you look back, like why, you know, why couldn't those mature properties, uh, you know, find a way to, to put a bunch of high school friends out of, out of, out of business? I and mean, I know you weren't high schoolers at the time, but um, being a little cheeky, but why, why couldn't they figure it out? You know, I think that they were. It, it's it's all about kind of marginal return for a dollar invested. And I think if if you have these very large media companies at the time that are making ninety. Six percent of their money on the TV business, for the most part, like they're thinking about how to improve their their TV businesses and their TV properties. And something like what we were doing, it was just, I think it was just enough under the radar in the grand scheme of these giant public media companies, um, kind of purviews on the on the world, that there was just nobody that it fell on to go innovate around these spaces. And I think that's when some of this stuff happens. It's not like they don't see the opportunities. A lot of them just end up being below the line. But then the world changes and the way people expect to consume content shifts from a laptop computer to a mobile phone. And um, next thing you know, the paradigm is more like, oh, gosh, this digital content thing is pretty important. So I read, I read this Grantland postmortem, and I, 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 I lament the loss of Grantland myself. I really enjoyed that site. Me too. Um, but you know, it was, it was followed by a pretty thoughtful rebuttal of, of you know by you, uh, which the the writer was kind enough to, to publish in full, and he kind of laid some of the blame at, for, for Grant Lenz's demise at, at your feet, saying like you know it's tough to compete with, um, you know with the Bleacher Report because they're they've got unpaid labor, and you took exception, wrote this response. But you know, can you tell us what the the the, the evolution of the site from? You know, avid bloggers to paid employees, and and ultimately now some some fairly big name writers. We started as a platform. We were very mu very much uh, looking to create uh, create a a home for and, and a meritocracy for writers who might have been the you know the the prep high school writer in Dallas that really wanted to be writing about the Cowboys someday. And we wanted to provide a platform where that person could come and start to build some brand equity in the space and reach a much larger audience on his or her own um, through us than they, they ever they ever could um, just, just going out and trying to do it solo. But it was a platform. And when we kind of realized that we had to make the transition from platform to media company, it was a, like an extremely complicated process that um, no, no one except those of us who went through it will probably ever truly understand involved building inc an incredible number of systems and processes and infrastructure. And, uh, and we moved from a model where we basically had 25,000 people writing for us to a model where we, we had a few hundred people writing for us. And today, really, the, you know, the, 
the secret sauce of Bleacher Report is it, it's the data paired, it's the data, it's the, the content strategy paired with really, really talented writers and other types of content creators. Um, versus in the beginning, the only reason we didn't pay people was because we had no money. Um, <laughs> I mean, to anybody who, who might be critical, um, you, you go try and start a media company with no money. <laughs> see, see, what, see what you do. And, uh, and so I, I think the way we, not that we handled everything perfectly, but I think we're extraordinarily proud and have been for years of how that transition went. And we got to the point where you know, we've been able to create one of the premier sports destinations in the world with huge upside over the next decade or two for and it's like what what Bleacher Report's going to become over time, I think will be pretty incredible. Uh, tell me about the, tra- the transition from 25,000 to, to, I think you said 100 people or about 100 people. A few hundred um, people, yeah. I mean, were there thousands of people writing you saying, but I still want to do this. I, I like this. Why, why can't I mean, you were literally cutting them off saying, like, sorry, we don't want your content anymore? Yeah, so what the basically what we did is we put a uh, – we did something that I, I probably wish we had done from the onset, and we put a writer application process in place. So what we asked to do – we asked people to do – we asked a lot of people to – uh, to apply through the application process, and some people didn't want to do it, and some people did it, and we, yeah, we had to have the the tough conversation and and say, hey, uh, and we, I mean, we built rubrics, we had people evaluating writing, so it's not like we just said, sorry, you're out. We sent would send detailed feedback and said, hey, um, your your leads are weak, um, your writing style is X Y Z, your analysis is this that. And we, we did that with every single writer who still wanted to write for the site. And some made it back through the application process and, and some did not. But it was, and we did that gradually over time, but it was a necessary process in order to kind of become a premium media destination. Were you, were you concerned that you were sending out an army of people who could then start Bleach Report 2, uh, you know, and, and they could band together and take you on? Or was uh, that... No, I think that what we did under the hood was actually quite complicated. And I think that... No, no, no. no. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, so, I mean, speaking of evolution, so you you you, you hired um, seemingly to me from the outside as I was learning about this, um, you know, an outside CEO to maybe you know prep the company for sale. The company was ultimately sold for I think about one hundred and seventy million dollars. Two fifteen. Two fifteen. Okay. Okay. That's, that was, the, okay. was the, the full value of the deal. Okay, I, I stand corrected. Um, that's okay. It's reported incorrectly in the press all the time. Yeah, that, that's where I'm. That's where I'm getting it from. Um, so that to me seems like a like a very, pretty selfless move, you know, um, to hire someone outside. How did you and I, I assume it was your your board or your your, your co-founders who were, you had two active co-founders at the time? Yep. Um, collectively determine that like, hey, we need to go to someone else to get this done. So we, we got to know a guy named Brian Gray, who's a very well-known person in kind of the digital sports ecosystem and the media world in general, when he was at Fox Sports. He was running foxsports.com, and he had been the GM of Yahoo Sports previously. We did, I think, our very first commercial deal with Fox Sports, and then Brian decided to bounce from Fox and was kind of doing the VC thing for a while and then decided that he wanted to get back into an operating role. And when we were... We were figuring out how we we needed to become a serious player in the space, and a serious player meant that you know we had to start selling ads in Madison Avenue, and we had to attract really top tier talent who believed in the company. And Brian just got Bleacher Report, I think, before most other traditional media people did, and we liked him. And he's got he was a kind of a coach mentor type mentality guy. And uh, and he also is just he was just very strong externally. Like he was a, he was somebody who could go and represent us in in any office and represent us publicly. And it just you know like I think the expression is it's be, it's better to be uh, um, rich than king. <laughs> I think is what what some people say. And it was just a really good partnership. Where personally I was able to continue running you know, a big chunk of, of the business from a day-to-day operational standpoint. And then Brian was just a great partner being kind of the external face and the deal maker. And we raised money together and we had a great relationship. And, you know, I learned a lot from him and grew up as a leader and as a manager in all types of ways. And it just, it just made sense. So I think it, it, there are different dynamics in play. We had, we had three founders, all three of us are now CEOs. Uh, all three of us had ambitions to be a leader, but when you you have that dynamic, it's it's hard to pick one person. 
And what we ultimately concluded is then when we had somebody like Brian around that uh, that there were benefits of, um, of bringing on somebody who'd done it before that we could learn from. We're talking to Dave Finocchio here, um, a man who built a website with a massive following. You have, what, 45 million monthly now or something like that? Um, in the, 50, 50 in, in the U.S. on our own website, we can go higher 51. If, if you include social and all of it, we yeah, I mean we reach well over 100 million people. Oh, okay, I, I had some hand signals in the back. It's, yeah, so it's gotten, so, it's gotten pretty big. <laughs> so, so uh, but did you when you when you started did you did you build your own site from the beginning? Like like the very first iteration of the site the was, very, it, was, the was it built by you guys? The very first iteration of the site was not built by us. We took a there was a a platform at the time called Joomla which is kind of like a very early version of a WordPress. And so what we did was we um, we used that, and we you're able to kind of do a little bit of custom design at the time. None of it was all that exciting, but the, the gist was we were able to actually get a site off the ground and start learning lessons, what it was like to publish and edit content. Um, and that is the gist of our sponsor today, who is Wix.com. Great. Great. <laughs> when you're building your own business, there are so many things you have to worry about. You don't have time to spend, you don't have really a lot of time to spend worrying about your budget, scheduling appointments, or building your web presence. That's where Wix.com comes in. Wix.com allows anyone to build a stunning website and quickly. With hundreds of designer-made customizable templates to choose from, the drag-and-drop editor there is no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. You can go to Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free account today. No credit card required. Go to Wix.com today. Um, yeah, and maybe we would have used Wix.com if, if only it, is, it had existed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting how far things have come since 2006. I bet you that first uh, iteration. Really can you visualize that first iteration? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can see it all of it in my head right now. I spent a lot of time looking at that <laughs> website. <laughs> and, and, and is it, is it truly of, is it very much of that era, or were you guys ahead of your time when you, when you started? Oh, no, it was a total piece of crap. <laughs> but it was, it was our piece of crap, and we we're very, we we're very proud of it. Uh, that's great. So we were talking about the two hundred and fifteen million dollars sale to Turner Media. I'm curious. I guess when. So was, was I right in saying when you brought Brian Gray on that was was it to bring him on to, to get it ready for sale or was it to bring him on just to, for the next phase? No, it was to bring him on for the next phase and to scale the business. We we raised our first really big. Or we've raised our first uh, eight figure round of, round of financing pretty shortly after. Brian joined, and then we ended up raising a $20 million round after that. So we we had ambitions to uh, to kind of go, go, and go and see how big of a media company we could build. I think that what, what we realized, and some of it was just right time, right place, where this potential partner came along in Turner who didn't have a digital sports property and whose content sensibilities were similar to ours. We got along really well with the people. So... Some of that just happened, and you kind of can't plan plan for that stuff. But the main reason I would say that we decided that it was the right time to to sell is that sports sports is a unique di- vertical in the sense that uh, rights drive so much of the sports business, like NFL rights, and there are obviously the rights to the games, and then the rights to highlights. The same for for all the professional sports. Those, the value of those rights are now extremely extremely expensive, and as an independent company those rights were pretty cost prohibitive for us. So in partnering with Turner, we now have rights to the NBA, we have rights to March Madness, we have rights to Major League Baseball, we have we have lots of other rights and super, super valuable for us. If we didn't have those rights, it was very difficult for us to see a, a real honest to God way that we could go compete with ESPN the way we do today. Um, there was just kind of a ceiling on the space. Could we have gone to a private equity firm and said, hey, we wanna raise $500 million and we're gonna go buy some rights here and there and put maybe right maybe we could have done that but it uh it seemed like a very risky play lord knows we, we never tried to pull that off we talked about it um we could have gone into other content verticals the way someone like a vox did one of my co-founders from bleach report has gone on to build a very successful women's lifestyle site called bustle so there there's a skill set there there's a and my other co-founder is working on kind of a science technology meets the future site that's also doing really well we um we were experts at content um that bled out from sports for sure but with bleacher report we we had aspirations to build the best experience we possibly could for sports fans and i think in our gut we all realized that if we 
if we took on other verticals that we would lose focus on sports and that ultimately users would uh, be the ones who would pay for that. So, so. so even though the writing is on the wall, I guess maybe the market's telling you that, that you can only get so big, I still have to imagine that, it, that selling a company that is your baby, that, that you really you know, you really started and put your blood, sweat, toil, and tears into, it's still a, a really tough choice. I mean, tell me about you know, uh, how you, you know, emotionally went forward with, with the sale of your business. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe. I mean, you do, we went through seven years of blood, sweat, and tears, times of, you know, we, where I'm sure we were all depressed, excited. Um, I mean, just range of emotions. It was, a, it was a crazy, crazy period in life. Not that it's not still crazy in different ways, but, uh, but it, it's more stable now. We've kind of made it um, versus at a point where you're, you wake up every day and you're not sure if something could change and all your hard work could kind of go for naught. It's, it's a scary. So, I mean, part of it was, yeah, wrapping our heads around the idea that Turner would be a great home for Bleacher Report. And I think once we bought into the idea that Turner was going to put Bleacher Report front and center and that we were going to become their sports brand, that that honestly took a lot of the angst out of the equation for us. If ESPN had bought us and we would have been second fiddle to ESPN.com and who knows? They could they could have said it. Hey, we're gonna have Bleacher Report be our high school sports property, and then mm-hmm. the the vision for what we wanted to do maybe wouldn't have been realized. I would I personally would have had a really hard time with that. And with some of the stuff you're talking about, I um, I might have you know laid down on the tracks and just said I don't care how much <laughs> money we're getting. I'm not doing this. This isn't why we uh, this isn't why we started this company. But that's not what happened. We had we had an amazing media company and amazing people who said, hey, we really believe in what you guys are gonna do. What you, and, and what you're trying to do, and we're going to help you get there faster. And, you know, we all made a lot of money in the process. Our investors made a lot of money. A lot of employees made a lot of money. Uh, and mostly at the time I was like the, the only, I'll just be candid, the, the only time I, I ever cried during the, the entire experience was right after we, we sold the company. And they were, they were tears of joy. <laughs> and I think some, you know, of, of relief as well and just emotional release of years and years of, of, of doing it and going through things that only probably my co-founders and a few other people really understand. Uh, but it was most, it was mostly a joyous thing for us. And, and, and the vision that they laid out when they bought you, it's, it's, it's largely come to fruition considering you're still here in some ways. Yeah. I I think the exciting thing about the partnership we have with them is that they, they have provided support where we have needed it. So that support has come in the form of rights. It's come in the form of promotion on television it's uh it has come in the form of additional dollars but there's there's no kind of there's no um the the relationship isn't such where they anybody comes and says hey you need to do this with your content or you guys need to do this with your strategy it's uh it's a relationship where for the most part they have put us in a position to be very successful and have allowed us to kind of keep executing on our plan and they've, in that sense, they've just been great partners. So you stayed at Turner for, for two years, and then you took a, a, took a year off to travel with your wife. Uh, and uh, I don't want to get that detail wrong by reading the wrong website. Uh, and were you able to, sure. to shut it down? Or were you, like, were you, you know, in some remote village somewhere checking bleacher reports? I'm assuming Notre Dame football or something like that. Uh, uh, or were you able to shut okay. it down? I think I watched Warriors games from, like, uh, nine or ten different countries last, uh, last year. No, I didn't totally shut it down. I'd shut it down... I love this really amazing kind of remote experience. Uh, I, I, I remained in places, Bleach Report's kind of chairman emeritus, so I was still involved in strategy, but I actually started another company while I was traveling that, um, that I then sold back to Turner at the end of, uh, of last year before I came back. So I, I like to stay busy and stay involved, but in this day and age where you can be plugged in at all times and you know, there's literally Wi-Fi almost anywhere you can go in the world. It's it's pretty maybe it's depressing to some, but it's kind of remarkable at the at the same time. Uh, so I did stay pretty plugged in, but that didn't mean that there weren't three or four days in a row where we'd be in the desert in Africa somewhere, and I would just be completely unplugged. I, it was it was totally rejuvenating experience. Yeah, you got to throw out where you were. Where'd you travel to? Uh, we started in, in Japan and then went to New Zealand and Australia. We're in Southeast Asia for a while. India, we went to Bhutan, we were in Africa for a few weeks, we were in Israel, and we were all over the place in Europe. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was like, it was the, the entire time, you know, from 2005 on to when we sold the company, 
my dream and what kind of kept me going was this idea that at some point I would take a break and go travel. And so for me, this was the very much the fruition of that. Uh, and it was, it was amazing. It was just, uh, um, I feel so fortunate to have been able to, uh, to have that life experience. Yeah. It sounds, sounds absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Um, and then you came back and, and so I find that pretty fascinating because at one point you hired an outside CEO to grow the company. Yeah. Um, and then Turner came back to you. And so, you know, how would, how would you grown over the years, um, that enabled you to feel like you were ready to, to, to lead that ship? Yeah. Well, when, when Brian, when Brian started at Bleacher Report, I was probably 26 or 27. Of the, and I'm, I'm, thir- I'm 32 now, so I had I had five or six years of uh, have five or six years of additional operating experience, <laughs> and uh, and I ran Bleacher Report for a couple of years after Brian left as well within Turner. You know, it's it's an amazing brand, and the guys did such a good job continuing to accelerate the growth of the brand last year. It's a our team is a family. There, um, there are a number of people there that are just so close knit and so talented. They continue to be some of the prime drivers of innovation in this space, and they probably don't get nearly as much credit as they as they should because we we are just sports and we don't bleed into into other verticals. But it's just it's just a special environment where we come up with new great ideas every day, and then we actually have people who can execute them. We have people who are so passionate about sports. Um, Turner, to their credit, stepped forward and said that they were interested in taking Bleacher Report to the next level, which for me was a really big deal. I thought, I thought we needed some real capital to go in and take this thing and and uh, and make it one of the great media brands in the world. Hopefully, if we do our jobs, and once they did that, I was you know and decided they were going to do it. I'm I'm all in. Like I I love this. It's part of my heart and soul. I love the Bleacher Report family. So it's kind of it's kind of an easy decision. I love sports. Like, what? Who, who could have a better job than going and investing a hundred million dollars to uh, make a sports property better? I mean, it, like, it's it's just not that hard. <laughs> so I'm curious because, like, you know, the, they're you're now you know you're now a gorilla in the space, um, you know, and you talked a little bit about kind of how the how the media landscape evolved over the years that that uh, since you started. Like, is it? I mean, I know there's no such thing as never, but I mean, is it, would it even be possible for four high school kids, uh, high four high school friends, uh, you know, to start, uh, you know, to take on those major properties that you you are now one of? You know, the barrier is just too well established by you. I think there are always different barriers, and I think that being totally honest, we we think more we are more paranoid about some young startup coming up and disrupting us than we are about ESPN. Um, we worry about that way, way more. And the reality is they probably won't do it in the same way that we did it. We did it through Google and um, and later on through Facebook and through building newsletters and through a mobile app. Those spaces, are, yeah, there are more barriers these days, but somebody could come along and, um, and create the world's most entertaining Instagram account and build up 50 million followers and then port that into some new type of business and build a brand and build a voice and uh, and build something that I will never think of because I'm too old or what or whatever <laughs> um, so people will do it it's just it's just a matter of kind of looking at the world through the lens of hey if you have an observation um, if you think something should be better than it is then go do something about it and even if you don't know a damn thing about what it takes to do it. Just jump in the deep end and figure it out. We're we're, we're doing this live, and uh, there are a whole bunch of cameras here, and and uh, and we're seeing like uh, Rick Rick Butcher, I suppose Boucher. I don't know. Uh, Bucher. Uh, Bucher. Okay. Bleacher yeah. Report NBA reporter on on CBS Sports right now. So yeah, shows some shows some Bleacher if, Report if dominance. Only, if only uh, you could. We, we could pipe us in together. <laughs> have a really great conversation. So he's on with Tiki Barber. He's he's my UVA guy. Uh, you know. Get the, oh yeah, get, very good. Um, Rick is also a great dude. Um, so uh, we're talking about we're talking about barriers and challenges. And you know, in 2014, you declared, "quote We're probably in the second or third inning of our of our journey, and BR is going to look a lot different two years from now." Well, it's two years later. What what happened over over those two years? Looking back, were were your predictions whatever they were because you didn't share, you didn't share them in the yeah. article? Were we've, they did they come true? I mean, we've become one of the the dominant media properties in in this new social distributed world. Uh, we 
we get more engagement um, on our brand across Twitter, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram than any other publisher in the United States, which is a pretty amazing thing. Um, we are we're regularly innovating around how you tell stories through mobile, um, through uh, through video, and through other formats. We're becoming, I think, the social voice of sports. Um, I think we're becoming kind of the number one voice of sports for the the 14 to 34 year old demo, which is really the demo that we're we're focused on. It's if a 75 year old loves Bleach Report, that's awesome. <laughs> um, I, I run into to lots of of them, especially who use our, our app Team Stream. But uh, but I think our focus on that demo specifically is a is a strategic advantage for us. In two more years, though. It, it, it's going to look a lot different than it does today. So it's just, you know, it's a never-ending project. So I guess that leads to another question, which is you also said in five to ten years, even bigger things are possible. Where, you know, gaze into your crystal ball here. What is, what is Bleacher Report or the web itself look like uh, what uh, down is the ten years? Going to look like in ten yeah. years. What's, what's uh, that's prediction? a very big question. Um, I think I can speak to Bleach Report. It's harder to speak to the internet. <laughs> I think Bleach Report is more and more going to going to become a, a brand that is culturally relevant, like really truly culturally relevant. The way maybe a, an MTV was in the in the 80s and early 90s. The way I think the way an ESPN and Sports Center and really their heyday and kind of the mid the mid to late 90s. Um, we want to mean something to people. We want to stand for more than than sports. I think we're more and more going to become an aspirational brand. Um, we're investing in content that will, I think, help us get there. We're investing in, in other things that um, that we'll talk about, you know, in the, the coming year or coming years that, that will help us get there. And, uh, and I think whether it's with three, it, there, there are lots of things that are going to change in the space that we're, we think we'll be, we'll be out ahead of. And, uh, and I think it'll be really good for sports fans everywhere. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. I'm asking <laughs> to be predictive of what the Internet's going to look like. <laughs> so I got a couple of questions. You know, it's my show, I guess. Well, it's not my show. It's Venture for America show, but I take a lot of ownership, so I get to ask some questions that I like. Um, so we'll just ask some sports questions here. Cause yeah. The clicks tell the story, I guess. Um, what is a, is there a sport right now? And I hope the answer is, I'm going to bias the, I hope the answer is not mixed martial arts because I can't watch people punching themselves in the head uh, or punching each other in the head all the time. But is there something you see as a, as a that's going to be a big deal. You can say, look, look, the clicks just say this thing's going to take off. Of something that's not on the radar right now? I think, yeah. I mean, I think what most people would say is that, you know, esports is really coming along. It's very popular in Asia. Uh, the extent to which it will get to scale in the United States is totally, totally unproven. Um, but there is a lot of interest in it. And it's something that we're spending a lot more time looking at. Truth be told, though, I think a lot of the growth is in sports that are already pretty mature. Um, soccer is doing incredibly well in the United States. Um, it's doing especially, I think, the uh, interest in European soccer clubs is just skyrocketing. So it's in the states and not in the states. So yeah. the MLS is doing well too. But what's doing especially well are um, are people who decide that they're going to embrace Arsenal or they're going to embrace Barca and they show up at bars in San Francisco at five in the morning to watch the matches or, or whatever whatever they do. Um, but in, interest in just the overall global soccer scene, it's the biggest sport in the world by far, that is going through the roof. Um, the NBA is also doing incredibly well right now. And I think Steph Curry gets credit for that, but the league's just has, I think the NBA more than any other league has embraced social media. They've put their content out there. They've put their players out there. They've got a lot of great personalities. And I think they're very well set up for kind of the the coming decade that we're that we're heading into. I uh, there's a, a soccer bar on that I'm at the base of my building on 25th Street, and I can attest uh, through those are my clicks. I can attest that soccer's become a big deal because I see those guys bef- like at odd hours, yeah. you know, packing a soccer bar in, in and they're watching European soccer, and I hear cheers like I'm on Sunday at a four o'clock or at four o'clock or something. I'm in the office and I just hear like loud eruptions. I'm like, oh, there must be some big game going yeah. on downstairs. And it's cool. I mean, it's cool for a 13 year old kid to wear a soccer jersey to school now. Right. You know? I mean, that's like you you see it all the time. It's a cool move and uh and it just makes sense to have a club that you support and when i you know when we were growing up the games weren't on tv so i mean if if you really wanted to follow a team you were probably doing it through a newspaper so it just it makes sense that that interest is growing and growing and the soccer players are literally some of the biggest celebrities in the entire world and there's something very attractive about just that that whole ecosystem 
Next question, my beloved, the only sport that I follow, which is hockey, my beloved Winnipeg Jets, who are out of the NHL playoffs. I think no, uh, no Canadian teams. In no the Canadian this year, teams. Right? Yeah, yeah. Lots of Canadian players, though. Yeah, lots Thank of goodness. lots of miserable Canadians right now sitting <laughs> sitting sitting at home. <laughs> it's a long spring. Uh, can you see can, can you see any road for hockey to actually make it? I don't mind if it doesn't because it keeps keeps ticket prices low if, if people don't go as long as they're still in business. I think hockey's hockey's best chance is probably to take more of a baseball road and become base, baseball has become a very localized sport. They're making a lot of money um, through ticket sales and through uh, through local TV deals and through through MLBAM. But national interest in baseball is not what it once was. Baseball used to have enormous national ratings. Everybody used to watch the World Series. Now everybody watches the Super Bowl and they watch the NBA playoffs. And I, th- I think the NFL especially has nailed the dynamic of making making games that your team isn't involved with relevant to you, either because of fantasy football or because, truth be told, a lot of people bet on football or whatever the dynamic is, but every game is interesting to a huge percentage of fans. And I I think MLB has proven they can be successful just by doing the local thing, and I, I would guess the NHL needs to look more like Major League Baseball and expand kind of their niche audiences and make that real, that those bonds really strong with a smaller number of people but do they ever get to the point where they're they have a big rise and and they're selling their national tv rights to playoffs for nba type of dollars um i think there's a steep steep road ahead Okay, good to know. Good to know. I'm, I'm not dissatisfied with that answer. Um, Dave, I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, been really interesting. Uh, thanks for coming on the thanks Smart Cash Buildings uh, podcast. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.